0: is my right a right We can do to save us, it is all on Christ. In fact, the thrust of this entire series is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And that means that we can add nothing to what Jesus has done. Nothing. We do not mix and mingle grace and the law. We do not muddy the waters, if you will. We keep them as separate as we can. Law is over here, but our salvation is through grace alone, through faith alone. From Christ alone. Someone say amen again. That was good. That was good. In fact, you can't put it any better than Robert Kappen who said, grace must be drank straight. No ice, no water, and certainly no ginger ale. We've got to drink this stuff straight. It's grace alone. Amen? Now, last week, we ended chapter 3 with this illustration that Paul was using about this wicked schoolmaster. The wicked schoolmaster is the one that slaps you on the hands and says, you'll never pass. You'll always fail. Stop that. No, no, no. Anyone had, you had a a schoolmaster like that. And Paul said, just to recap from last week, so then the law was our guardian or schoolmaster until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under that wicked, evil schoolmaster. And I mentioned last week that that word guardian or your Bible might say tutor, the Greek word is pedagogue. I need to refresh our memory on what that means. A pedagogue was actually, at that time, a slave that was put over a child. So wealthy parents in the ancient world, they had slaves. And they would take one of their slaves and say, I want you to follow Julia around and keep her in line. Teach her, you know, the basics like her ABCs and her 123s. But then also, you know, make sure that she doesn't get out of line. The stereotype was the ones that beat them and, and, and was harsh to them and treated them, you know, like, like just like children. <laughs> and Paul says, we have been set free from that taskmaster. The law was that taskmaster or that schoolmaster. And now we've been set free. So that catches us up. Today, we're going to enter into chapter 4. Are you ready? took us eight weeks to get to chapter 4. And today, we're going to look at eight verses in chapter 4. Let's look at them together. I mean, Paul says, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And so if you could imagine a son, a boy, young boy, he's got a rich dad. That's the kind of boy I wanted to be when I was a kid, you know, a boy with a very wealthy dad with a huge estate. He's born with a silver spoon in hand, and he knows that he's going to get everything from his father, right? As soon as he becomes of age, he's going to take over the family business, he's going to take over the family wealth. But until he gets to that time, until he gets to that age, he's just a kid, right? And when he's just a kid, this is what he typically hears. No, 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 no. It's one of my favorite words. I use it a lot, even for baby Hadessa. She's 10 months old, and I'm always saying, no, no mouth. No, no, stay off of that. Stop climbing on that. Stop saying that. Josiah, be quiet. It's always no, no, no. And that's what a kid experiences, right? So when you think about it, even though he is the son or the heir of a millionaire, and all of that estate is eventually his, he still has little to no freedom as a child. Is that true? Yeah, it is. And here's what the irony of the whole thing is, is that the pedagogue is actually a slave. So the slave is the one taking his freedom away. Do you know what I'm saying? So he is a slave. He's he's an heir of the kingdom, but at the same time, this slave is coming in, and the slave has more freedom than he does. The slave is actually taking his freedom for him. Do you see the irony of this, Justin? Yes. Justin, you're going to like this. You've ever heard of a guy named Socrates? Yeah. Socrates has a famous dialogue that's been recorded between him and a younger man. And here and here here's what he says. He says to the younger man, Do they let you have your own ruling of yourself, or do they not trust you with that either? And the younger man says, They trust me with it, indeed. So Socrates says, But as to this, who has the ruling over you? And the young man says, This man here, he is my tutor or pedagogue. And Socrates responds, Being a slave, eh? But what do you think about that? And the young man says, yes, he is a slave, but just one of our own slaves. And Socrates responds by saying, an awfully strange thing this, that you, free man that you are, should be under the ruling of a slave. So Paul is saying that there was a time in which we were children and we were under the law. And we were under um, our our guardian or our tutor. And even though we may have been heirs to the kingdom, even though we may have been children of God, so to speak, there's still a time in which, as children, we have no freedom. Am I right? And how many of you know that the book of Galatians is about freedom? So we're getting ready to get set free. You ready? When do we get set free? The last part of verse 2, until the date set by his father. And so there is a time, especially in other cultures, where a young boy becomes a man right? And I say especially because in other cultures, because in America, we don't do this so well, do we? Like, we don't actually have this coming of age or this rite of passage for teenage boys. I mean, teenagers just don't know when they become a man. Sometimes, you know, they can be in their 30s, and they're still trying to figure out, when am I going to be a man? You know what I'm talking about? I have read countless books on this. Um, I'm raising two boys, Um, I've been involved in many men's ministries, and so I've been interested in the fact that America, we don't have this rite of passage. And so what these books will typically say is you've got to kind of be creative and create these little ceremonies in your boys' lives so they become a man. Um, Some people, it might be when they finally get the keys and they can drive, you know, that's kind of like entering into manhood. You're looking forward to that day, aren't you? you be a man when you get those keys. You can do it. You got freedom. You can do what you want. Or, or from some people, maybe in a different part of town, maybe, maybe H.J. when he grew up, I don't know, but you, you become a man when you shoot your first buck, right? You, this, is, this was you, right? When you shot your first buck, I'm finally a man. I got them horns hanging in my teeny tiny bedroom. <laughs> but in America, we just don't do it so well. In Rome, this is where the Galatians are, they're in the Roman Empire. In Rome, a boy becomes a man at the age of 14. And so at the age of 14, his estate becomes his. He's allowed to control his estate. So he's got a wealthy father. At 14, the father says, here's, here's your estate. You might remember the parable that Jesus told about the young son who you know, wanted his estate and he spent it on you know, prostitutes and along, you know, the, the prodigal son. That was, he became of age. And he's like, I'm of age. I'm ready for my stuff. And so his, God, so his father gave him his stuff. A Jew, um, a Jewish kid, becomes an adult. Do you know when, what age it is? 13. And we still celebrate this today with the bar at a bar. No, wait, not a bar. At bar mitzvah, right? Yeah. Which stands for something. Do you know what it stands for? Bar mitzvah? Bar mitzvah literally means he's of an age in which he has to follow the mitzvah, which is the law. So he's of an age to follow the law. And so at 13 years old, you become a man, you're held accountable to the law, and you're held accountable to your estate. So Paul is saying there's a a time in which the boy becomes a man. And when the boy becomes a man, that date that was set by his father, he's no longer under that slave. So now look at verse three. And so, in the same way, he's gonna bring it to us. We were children, and we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Okay, so I don't know if you're scratching your head like I'm scratching my head, but wait a minute, Paul, why do you keep doing this? First, you're talking about prison, then you're talking about schoolmasters, and then you're talking about heirs to a kingdom, and now you're talking about what was that word again? elementary principles of the world? Where are you going with this? Can't you just stick to one illustration? That's kind of what I'm thinking. And I'm wondering, what in the world is an elementary principle of the world? What is it? Well, if you track what Paul's saying here, he's saying that there was once a time when we were children underneath the law, but now we are not children. We have reached that age of adulthood. But before we reached the age of adulthood, we were under the elementary principles of the world. And what are the elementary principles of the world? The Greek word for elementary principles of the word is "sochia," which literally means things placed side by side in a row things placed side by side in a row. And so you might think of the alphabet. The alphabet is placed side by side in a row. Do you remember in grade school that laminated alphabet above the chalkboard? A is for apple, B is for ball, um, C is for carnivore. You know what I mean? So, So you had ABCs right there, you knew you would always refer to them. The elementary principles of the world are those things that are lined up in a row. It's elementary stuff. It's the stuff that elementary school kids deal with. It's the ABCs and the one two threes. It's the basic stuff. What's the basic stuff? You see, Paul has moved away from talking about Abraham and the covenant that we talked about two weeks ago, and now he's talking specifically to the Galatians. And the Galatians aren't Jews, right? They're Greeks. And so now he's not talking about the law and Abraham. Now he's talking about you too. You may be a Greek and you may know nothing about the laws of God, but you do know something about the elementary stuff of the world. And within the elementary stuff of the world, here's the way an elementary person thinks. The elementary principles of the world is the childish belief that we can unlock the inheritance of freedom and life by living better. Let me say that again. The elementary principles of the world is that childish belief that we can unlock the inheritance of freedom and life by living better. You know how kids are. Kids are always seeking the approval of mom or dad or coach or teacher. And so the elementary stuff is to be always longing for some sort of approval. And they think they can earn that approval by trying harder and doing better and being gooder. And Paul's saying that's elementary stuff. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are thinking, seems like you just made a leap there, Mike. Are you thinking that? Where in the world do you get the idea that elementary stuff is that whole thing of trying harder, doing better, and being gooder, which you like to say a lot? Well, let me show you, because I want you to see that this really is what the elementary principles of the world is. The elementary principles of the world is believing, this childish belief, that you can manipulate God into liking you by doing something with your behavior. Let me show you why. Paul only uses... This phrase, elementary principles of the world, four times in the Bible. We see see that exact same idiom four times. Two of them are here in this chapter. So we just read that one. I want to jump to verse 8. We're going to jump ahead a little bit to verse 8 and read that to you. And I want you you to see what he says there. Verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather I should say known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless, and here's this word, elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I personally am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. So in verse 8 through 11, Paul is saying to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, to the Galatians, and to us, before you knew God, you worshipped something. You were under some impression, and that impression was that you have to follow certain things in order to win this deity's approval. Whether it be obeying seasons, obeying holidays, um, you know, watching the solar calendar, and you, you had something. And for the Gentiles in this, in the Galatians, it was probably some solar deity. And so Paul's saying, you used to think you could manipulate those gods by your behavior. But now that you are found by God and know God, why would you continue to run into those elementary, school-age type things? No, we're above that is what he's saying. That might not be enough to convince you. So what if we went to an entirely different book? Like maybe an entirely different context where Paul uses the same phrase. He's talking to a different group of people. He also uses this phrase, elementary principles of the world, in the book of Colossians, in chapter 2, in fact. So I just want to take you there real quick, and if we can see the way Paul uses that phrase there, it might help us to understand what he means by it here, don't don't you think? Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, it says this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or by empty deceit according to human d- traditions. You know what this is? A philosophical babble, you know, talking about, talking all up here, or human deceit or human traditions. That Those traditions of don't do this and don't do that and you must do this and you must do that. Those are all human traditions, are they not? They really are. You can't wear jeans to church. You can't, you know, those kinds of things. Those are human traditions. Moving on, according to human traditions, according to the, and here's this phrase again, the elementary principles of the world and not according to Christ. So he says, make sure you don't get sucked into all this talk, all this deceitful human traditional talk that is according to the elementary stuff of the world and not according to Christ. Do You see that? One more verse, and then I think it will bring it home for you. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 through 23. He says this, if with Christ you died to the elementary principles of the world. Why as if you are still alive in that world do you submit to regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? He goes on to say those things refer to the kinds of things that perish as they are used. Do you know what he means by that? Do not taste means don't eat certain foods. What happens when you eat, say, bacon? You eat it and you swallow it and you digest it and then it becomes fertilizer for some plant. It it all perishes. Those things perish with use. You use it, it's gone. It doesn't matter. It doesn't save you. It doesn't unsave you, okay? So why are you worried about do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? According to human precepts and teachings, he goes on to say this, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom, And they promote the self-made religion and asceticism, which is, you know, treating the body severely. But they are, and I love this, you have to listen to this, they are no value in stopping the indulgences of your flesh. So the elementary stuff is all these rules, don't touch, don't taste, don't listen to secular music, and all... And, and, and try harder, and do better, and be gooder, but Paul says, in the end, it may seem wise. Those people who say that kind of stuff, they sound holy, don't they? And so Paul says, it sounds holy, it sounds special, but in the end, there's no value in changing you as a person. There's no value. You can stop eating bacon all you want. In the end, you're still a wicked, evil sinner. You can stop listening to secular music, and maybe you might float a little higher than you do now, but in the end, it will not change the fact that you are still a wicked and evil sinner. The only thing that can change you is faith in Christ, amen? So you see these elementary principles, and I need you to see this. This is why I'm so passionate about it, because the elementary principles of the world is this elementary school-age stuff of you need to do this and don't do that. And what that does is it takes you away from Christ and it puts you in elementary school again, learning your ABCs and your one two threes. And how many of you want to do that? I don't. I don't want to live my life spinning my wheels, trying harder to do better and be gooder whenever what I really need is more Jesus. Amen? Listen to the way Keller says it. Timothy Keller says, This is a picture of how Christians may to some degree fail to experience the freedom and joy of their salvation. Christians can continue to live day by day as slaves. Is that true? Christians can continue to live day by day as slaves instead of as the adopted sons of God that we are. Though we are rich in the gospel, adopted children of God with complete and direct access to the Father, we can return to relating to Him only through our record of moral merits. Isn't that true? We are sons. That's what Paul's been saying for the past two chapters. We are heirs of God's kingdom. And yet we can return to this underage kid who's always got these people slapping our wrists and saying, no. Verses 4 through 5 is really, really deep. And so I'm just going to, like, chunk it out, and I'm going to highlight where I'm going, okay? We're going to spend a little time on these two verses. Listen to this. But when the fullness of time had come. So here comes the good news. Here comes the spin. We once were slaves underneath these elementary principles of the world, but what's it say? When the fullness of time had come, do you remember last week all those "untils"? Do you remember that we were in prison until Jesus came, we were enslaved until Jesus came, we were under these masters until Jesus came, and I had mentioned that that "until" is Paul saying that the law has an expiration date? Remember, or probably a better way of saying it is that it has a best if used by date. So the law said best if used before Jesus comes. Once Jesus comes, the offspring that was to come, the law has nothing to do with us. We are now set free from the law. Here's that until, right here, when the fullness of time had come. Guess what? Boom. The expiration date has hit, expired. And now the fullness of time is here. And what happens at the fullness of time? Let's keep going. God sent forth his son. I could back it up and say it like this. When the fullness of time had come, God period. Let's just pause there for a second. I want you to see who did it. Who did the thing that's being done? Someone say God. It's not you. Right? It's not you didn't grow up and finally reach maturity. Don't get don't get your illustration confused there. It is at the fullness of time came God. God's the one who did it. God did it, not you, not me, not anyone else. But what did God do? He sent his son. I don't know if you know what I'm going to say next, but you should by now. This is an excellent opportunity for me to continue to preach about why we call ourselves Missio Dei, because the word Missio Dei literally means the sending of God. God is a missionary. He's on a mission to reach people who are far from him, and he's always sending. And what did God do? He sent his son. He sent his son to redeem people who were far from him. And that's why we call ourselves Missio Dei Church, because we believe that we are part of that same mission, the mission of God. He's sending us to reach people who are far from him. Us are being sent to people even in this community, even right next door, even right around our neighborhoods. There are, how many of you think there are a lot of people who are far from God? And so we believe that God is sending us on a mission to reach those people, and we're gonna do nothing more than that and nothing less than that, amen? We're really not here to build a country club. We're here to make disciples. We're really not here To build some sort of programs that you can sign up for, we're here to reach people who are far from God. That's it. That's all. That's why we call ourselves Missio Dei. So, sorry, I just had to preach Missio Dei because it's right there. God sent His Son. It's good stuff. Back to our text. Born of a woman, and born under the law. So this man that God sent, we know Him to be Jesus. He was born of a woman, which means he's a human being. He's 100% human. We know that, right? And he's also born under the law. So that same law that Paul's been fighting against for the past three chapters, saying that we're dead to that law, Jesus was born under that same law. Or another way you can say it is he was born to the world, the same world that you and I live in, the same world that has the elementary principles of the world. So Jesus was born under those elementary principles. Jesus was born underneath that law. Just like you and just like me. But he wasn't just 100% man, you know, that he was also 100% God. And so he didn't just be born underneath the law, but he also came to redeem those who were under the law. This is, I don't know, I Are mean, you seeing how big this verse is? Jesus came under the law, as one under the law, in order to snatch you out from underneath the law. He came in like a secret agent, man to snatch us out from underneath the law or the elementary principles of the world. That's good news. Let me, let me sell it to you in a different way. That word redeem is super cool. It literally means this. Redeem means to release a slave from his or her owner. So Paul's talking about slavery and freedom here, right? And he uses this word redeem, which literally means to release a slave from his or her owner by paying the slave's full price, Keller says this, here the slave master is the what? Law. And Jesus pays our full price to the law. He completely fulfills all the law's demands on us. And so he is able to free us from the law. So Jesus came underneath the law and you and I were enslaved to the law. And Jesus says, I'm going to pay the debt. Whatever, you've seen movies about slavery, right? If you wanted to take the man out of slavery, Django, Unchained, or whatever, you want to get him out of there, you've got to pay the price and get her out, right? And that's what Jesus did. He came in, he paid the price. How did he pay it? Not with money, but by obeying every single law. And now he can redeem us out from underneath it. Isn't that cool? I want you to hear how Martin Luther preaches on this verse. He says, when Christ came, he found us all in prison. And What did he do about it? Well, although he was Lord of the law, he voluntarily placed himself under that law and permitted it to exercise dominion over him, indeed to accuse and to condemn him. Christ, however, did no sin, hence the law really had no jurisdiction over him. Yet, the law treated this innocent, just, and blessed Lamb of God as cruelly as it treats us. It accused him of blasphemy and treason. It made him guilty of the sins of the whole world. The law brought all its fright to bear upon Christ until he experienced anguish and terror such as nobody else has ever experienced. His bloody sweat, his need of angelic comfort, his prayer in the garden, his lamentation on the cross... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They all bear eloquent witness to the sting of the law that he suffered in order to what? To redeem them that were under the law. Jesus came under the law so that he might redeem us from out from underneath it. That's good news, isn't it? It is. So again, if I could just like piggyback on what Paul's been saying for the past four chapters, why would you go back under it? Why? Well, let's move on. The end of verse 5 of Galatians says this, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. It just gets better. Do you see that? Not only did Jesus come to redeem us from the law, but he did it so that we might be adopted as sons. Scholars would tell you that redemption is two-sided. It's it's, it's like a two-edged sword. The first side is he redeems us from the law. He, he, he redeems us from our sin. He says, no more sin. He, he saves us from the law and saves us from our sin. But the second side of redemption is that he saves us not just to save us, but he saves us to something. In other words, he doesn't just buy us from our slave owner and set us free and say, you're free to go. But he buys us and says, I got a house for you over here. I got an inheritance for you over here. I'm not just setting you free. I'm setting you free to this. So we have, it's two-sided. Do you see that? Timothy Keller says, It's very easy and common to think of our salvation only in terms of the first and not the second. That is, only as the transfer from us of our sins. We often think of that way, right? The gospel says, My sins have been paid. Jesus paid it all. And that's true. But there's another side that we often forget. And Keller goes on to say, But not as our transfer to us as the son's rights and privileges. When we think like that, we are really only half saved by grace. We're only half saved. We can get pardoned, but now we have to live a good life and earn and maintain God's favor and rewards. And so you need to see that these four verses, Galatians 4, 4-5, through 5, unpack a ginormous amazingness of God's grace. Not only are we saved from our sins and brought out from underneath the law, but we are made sons and daughters. We are made heirs, just as Christ is an heir. Paul says in Romans, we are co-heirs with Christ. This is good, 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 right? News. Let's move on to verse six. Now, because you are sons, right? Now you are sons. You're on this side of that redemption process. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So again, I have to just say something about the word sent. It's there again. Do you see it? God is a missionary. He's always sending. He sent his son, and now he's sending the spirit. And he sent them to do two different things. Um, The son he sent, he just told us why. Under the law, to rescue us from the law so that we might receive his adoption. We can become sons like he's a son. So that's what Jesus did. Jesus did that in space-time history, right? But you and I might not really feel that so much 2,000 years later. We don't. He did that for us. We know he did it for us. We can kind of resonate with that in our brains, but we don't really sense it today. The Spirit he sent to give us a present experience. Do you see what I'm talking about? The Son redeemed us and made us sons and daughters. But the Spirit moves inside of us and begins to make us feel like sons and daughters. So Jesus did something in space-time history for us. The Holy Spirit does something in present reality so that we can experience what it feels like to be a son. And here's what the Spirit does. He moves into you. Kind of moves into your neighborhood, if you will, into this neighborhood. Paul literally says, in our hearts. He, the Spirit takes up residence in our hearts to give us such an experience of sonship that it causes us to cry out. And that word cry out is a big, powerful word, like crying out to God, he moves into our hearts to give us an experience that would cause us to cry out to God. And what do we call him? Abba, which literally means dad. He's our dad. You may have heard it in the past, daddy, you know what I mean? like, uh, and, and I still don't think it's bad to say daddy, but it's not baby talk. It's not dad, 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 dad. It's, 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 it actually is more of an intimate talk. You know, a grown man would refer to his father as his dad if he's getting ready to hug him. You know what I mean? I love you, dad. You know, that's intimate, real dad talk. Not duh, 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 duh. Like, like like Hadessa says this now. We have no idea if she's talking to me or about me or if she even knows what she's saying, right? But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying it's an intimate word called Abba. So we have the spirit living inside of us, which trains our whole, our spirit to think of God like He really is our dad. So, so, so what He gave us when He died on the cross and pulled us out from underneath the law is sonship, and the spirit exists in order for us to feel that sonship, to feel it so much that we feel like calling God dad. Isn't it powerful? You might wonder, as if you're a scholar, and perhaps. Isn't the word Abba Aramaic? How many of you were wondering that? <laughs> Isn't the word Abba an Aramaic word? And why would Paul use that to the Galatians? The Galatians aren't Aramaic, and they're not even Jewish. <laughs> they're Greeks. They speak Greek, and it's all Greek to me, amen? Why would he use the word Abba to Greek people, to Greek-speaking people? Well, the reason why is because Jesus used the word Abba. And it's recorded in the Gospels. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, you've read the Gospels, and you know that Jesus called God Abba. And that's a big deal because for Jewish people, and Jesus was a Jew, you weren't even allowed to say God's name. You weren't. You don't say God's name. In fact, they had words for God's name that were words for the word for his name, so they couldn't say the name of his name. Like, like the, it's called the Tetragramagon, I think. It's a, four letters, the Y, the H, the W, and the H, and we call it Yahweh, but it really isn't that. It's just a, a bunch of consonants thrown together to protect us from actually, accidentally saying his name. In fact, if you go to a Jewish website today and you're Googling something, you know, about bar mitzvahs or something, you might actually see the word God spelt G, asterisk D, because they won't even type up God, which isn't even really his name, but they still won't do it. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus lives in a time period where you weren't even allowed to say his name. No saying God's name. And then Jesus prays out loud, Dad. This blows everyone away. He has a kind of intimate relationship that's a little bit scandalous. You know what I mean? There's no, that's not um, respectful. He calls him Dad. Paul is saying that when that spirit comes inside of us, it gives us such an experience that we can uncontrollably cry out to God in the same way that Jesus cries out to God and calls him dad, that we get Jesus's inheritance, meaning we are sons just like Jesus is a son. We are daughters just like Jesus is a son. (laughs) Okay. All right, let's move on. Verse 7, here's the conclusion. So, Paul says, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So essentially what Paul is saying is so. After everything I've just said to you, that is that you were once underneath the tutor and you were a slave and then you got to be an adult and then now you're out from underneath the slavery and Jesus came to redeem us out from underneath the law so that we can be made sons and we have the spirit who makes us feel like sons so that we can say, daddy. Paul's saying, if that's true, then you are no longer a slave. He wants you to hear that. Can I just let you hear that? You are no longer a slave, amen? But you are a son, or a daughter of God. You're a child of God. And he goes on to say this, and if you're a son, if you're a child of God, then you are an heir. You are in line to all of your daddy's wealth, all of your daddy's glory, all of your daddy's power, all of your daddy's kingdom. Think about this. If you're no longer a slave, but you are a son, and if you are a son, you are an heir to all that your daddy owns. How is that going to change your life? How will you walk as a son rather than a slave? You see, what Paul is saying here is essentially this. So stop putting yourself into slavery. Be free. You're a son. You should fear nothing and no one. Don't let those legalists tell you what to do. Don't worry about trying to please other people. Don't try to please God even because God's already saved you. You don't have to fear the judgment of God because the judgment of God was stuck on his son, Jesus Christ. You don't even have to fear death because you know what happens at death. You get your inheritance. You have nothing to fear. So Christians should walk with the ultimate confidence, the ultimate shoulders back. Because we have the spirit living in us saying, I am a son and it's all mine. My father owns the place. Let me close with this quote. Uh, I'm starting to really love this author. I've been reading a lot of him lately. He says this, if we are ever to enter fully, Robert Kappen, excuse me, if we are ever to enter fully into the glorious liberty of the children of God, we are going to have to spend more time thinking about freedom than we do. This is why I'm lingering in this series because I think we need to hear this more, more time and freedom than we do because, he he goes on to say, the church, by and large, has had a poor record of encouraging freedom. Can someone say amen to that? It has spent so much time inculcating in us the fear of making mistakes that it has made us like ill-taught piano students. You have to hear this. We play our pieces, but we never really hear the music. We never really hear them, because our main concern is not to make music, but to avoid some flub that will get us into trouble. The church, having put itself in loco parentis, which means in the place of our parents, has been so afraid that we will lose sight of the need to do it right, that it has made us care more about how we look than about who Jesus is. Someone say amen. It has made us act more like subjects of a police state than fellow citizens of the saints." That's an awesome quote. We, 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 we play our songs, but we don't even really know what it sounds like because we're too worried about how we look when we do it, or we're too worried about making some mistake. <laughs> and because of that, we're more worried about what we do and how we do it, and if we do it right, than we are just about Jesus. And Paul's saying, you've been set free from that childish, elementary, press this note, press this note, and you're now free to play. Play something beautiful. Amen? Let me ask you to discuss this at your table. Because if what Kappen just said is true, that the church historically has spent more time um, not telling us about freedom and more time about being our parents and showing us how we should do it right, and therefore we need to spend more time thinking about freedom so that we can learn how to play and enjoy music, if that's true, then you might have an answer to this question, and that is this. When are you most in danger of living like a slave and not a son? What areas in your life do you find it difficult to remember that you're a son of the king and you live more like a slave who's trying really hard to do it right? Let's talk about that for about three minutes. And while we talk about that, I've got a nice... Elementary principle song. For us let's wrap it up then, and uh, let's bring it back to Christ. Um, let me just close with this verse. Um, in, in Mark chapter 14, Jesus says, um, well, this is what happens in Mark 14. Jesus said to his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful even to death, and so remain here and watch. And then going a little further, Jesus fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said this, Dad, all things are possible for you. Please remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And I see here a picture of a son who loves his father, and yet he's doing things he doesn't necessarily want to do. And he calls him Dad. And this is the picture of one of the last nights of Jesus' life, when he was begging his father, if there's any other way, could we not go to the cross? Could I not be broken into millions of little pieces? Could I not shed every drop of my blood for sin? Is there any other way? And I think that God the Father, can you imagine being the father of your son and having to say to him, sorry, bud, you know what I mean? This is the price you have to pay for everyone else's salvation. That's sort of what God the Father says to his son. But I want us to hear how Jesus, even in that moment, knowing and, con- and convinced that he needs to go to the cross, still can come to his father and say, Dad, this is, is there any way, can we talk about this? Fortunately for us, father didn't say yes, and Jesus did go to the cross, and he did die for our sins. And at that moment, Paul has told us today that he's redeemed us from under the law, and he's made us the kinds of sons that also can say, Dad. So I'd like to invite you now at this time to um, come to the Lord's table and say, "Dad," and you can talk to Him just as Christ. Talks.